came with the house. One normally hopes for a washing machine and a dryer, not a mannequin. I actually hate mannequins. You know that? I feel like... Do they they remind you of your own obstinate uh, humanoid indifference? No, they remind me of people and and it terrifies me. Like I, I find that if I'm in the presence of a mannequin, I feel like I'm in the presence of the other, you know? (laughs) Really terrifying. And my great uncle... Had, was a mannequin. Se- had se- <laughs> was a mannequin. Had several mannequins uh, in this ro- like in this room where I eventually would like where where we would sleep if we were staying with him, and like you'd always have to turn. You know, I knew they'd be in there, and you'd just you'd go up in the dark and you'd see their fucking form. Then you turn the light on, there they were, and, and I I don't know. It always terrified me. So there's something about them. Their very lifelessness is is terrifying. Um, how we doing, fellas? Good. Jake, how you doing? In the wild. Hey, man, I'm all right. It's good to be back. Today we're we're working with a different crew. It's uh, um, Michael, Jake, and me, Peter. We're without Will, but I think we'll be better for it. Yeah, hopefully someone else can speak for a change. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, yeah. Will's a Delosian oh now. <laughs> Yeah, he's, he's going to join <laughs> an even worse podcast. Last time I talked to him, he was like really into Nick Land, and uh, I don't know. I haven't spoken to him in a long time since. Then. Yeah, but it's the three of us, and we are talking about for they don't know what they do. Yeah, but uh, slow your jets down, Will Jacob. <laughs> you haven't been around for a little while. <laughs> that's right. That's right. How does this work again? We do about Actually, half an hour of intro. <laughs> well, we gotta, we gotta five minutes of talking about do a few false starts and then and then and then get going. We gotta get the vibe, Jake. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Vibe is crucial. Um, did you guys okay? You know the fabric, like the knit fabric, uh, mohair. I until two nights ago thought it was mole hair. In that they literally made like a sweater out of mole hair, uh, only to learn that it was sex, uh, from a goat. Apparently, I think I assumed it was from a mole. <laughs> but it's but it's M O H. It's mohair. It's M O hair. A mohair. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. There's not a mole in sight. No in that word. <laughs> I was used to wearing cotton, which of course is the tuft of a rabbit's tail. But um, I, uh, yeah, it was quite a shock and an embarrassing one of that. Moles actually like both have a negative and a positive connotation when you, you, know, you got a mole on the inside, right? Moles are the tunneling, you know, what? Well, that's a- underground creatures that having a mole, being a mole can be a good thing, right? Well, depending on what side you're on. I mean, if you're Claudia, like Will is the, a good thing, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Or uh, Enrique Iglesias, huge thing for him. Famous mole yeah. guy? Yeah, huge, huge mole. Hmm. Famous small penis guy too. Ah. Did you know about that? 
No. A small uh, penis. Yeah. <laughs> a small penis. <laughs> Have you seen this? I, I was only recent. I say this because I was only recently uh, made privy to the fact that like for a certain period of time, Enrique Iglesias, like during his live shows, sort of pathologically admitted to having a small penis, like couldn't help <laughs> himself and like needed for people to know that. Um and so like there are several clips of him online, like at live shows, you know, playing in front of like tens of thousands of people being like, I have a small penis. Hmm. Maybe, maybe he just wants to avoid the flocks of fans uh, trying to lust after him. Well, I think the point is that like they still love him despite, and that's, that's the message of today's podcast, you know, from three small penis podcasters. <laughs> This is Jacob. Well, this is Jacob from Cujac and so on. And <laughs> I have my own admission to make. Now I got some okay. some some mileage out of that mohair because I swear people say mole hair. That's, I think they say mole hair. No, because there's mole skin. Is this no, like I've a fucking like Baron, Berenstein Berenstein bear thing? You know, like it's mohair and there's mole skin. Mole skin. Mole skin. Moleskine, I thought. Sorry, that was that's the that's the Moleskine is the notebooks. <laughs> Jake, just because you know, Moleskine's gun. <laughs> no, it's Mo, it's Moleskine. It's Moleskine. It's Moleskine. It's skin. There's a fucking. It's it's I. Okay, Jake, is it is it foreskin or foreskin? <laughs> <laughs> it's not Moleskine. It's not S K I N. It's S K I E N. No, it's K I N A. K I N E. Oh really? I'm going to skein. So it's more skein. Did I say mole skein? Yeah. yeah. Mole skin. I guess it's a mole skin. Fine. But there's mole skin clothing, is there not? Not that I'm aware of. Takes the fabric guy. Am I? <laughs> yeah. No, I, what I'm what I'm scared of with this uh well, this may be candor. This may be too candid. So, but when I haven't been at the reading group, I'm like, wow, there are many ways to reading and interpreting Zizek. And it's not as though I'm, it's not like I'm missing something or maybe, I mean, I am, I know that I'm missing a lot, but like, <laughs> wow, you can go really technical with Zizek if you, if you prefer, if you'd like. Mm-hmm. And I'm on the, I'm touched up, you know? I'm touched up. I'm not raw when it comes to Zizek. And I think there's like a whole raw universe out there. And I, and I, so we're doing an episode on what we are ultimately doing, you know, doing a reading group on as well. Mm -hmm. Same book. And so how are we going to do it differently? Jake back with the hard hitting questions. Uh, It's like, we're going to know until we do it. Yeah. But retroactively. um, Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, just, just, just put a pin in, in the conversation. Yeah, we're doing a discussion on for they know not what they do, which we're doing a reading group on with uh, Dr. Matthew Fleisfeder. Uh, if you want to join that, join our Patreon. But that that being said, there you know it, the turnout was great, and a lot of people, man, a lot of smart people listen to our podcast. It was intimidating. Yeah, <laughs> but not that intimidating. <laughs> we're still here because we're still here. <laughs> And we got a shitload of emails from people. Thank you for reaching out. Oh, nice. What were the, what can you, um, without names, can you dox a few people for us? <laughs> <laughs> well, like what, what sorts of questions were they asking? 
what is the difference between Zizek and Todd's definition of the master signifier? Why does Zizek seem to conflate the master signifier and the point de capiton? Which we've gotten into before. Uh, I heard Russ Spurglia and Todd get into it about uh, Moby Dick and... Mm. They, they seem to have a somewhat similar conversation that we did about it. Uh, so yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a bit of a hazy given that it's a, a matter of language. I think in terms of like the structure of the way that we speak or write, maybe that's a question to be asked. We'll have to ask um, Todd, but I think maybe for some sentences, Todd, <laughs> for example, Todd, what is master signifier? Yeah, I'm not sure. Like, I think this is, it's what, a, it's this a, is kind of what we settled on. Like, right. It's like, it, what's this, this forced distinction? This uh, is what we're, it was the Jaws conversation, I believe. Mm. Yeah. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the quilting point is a part of the operation of the master signifier. You know, that sounds pretty good to me, Michael. Sounds pretty good. Well, the, the, okay. But the master signifier quilts, but the yeah. capital to me would be the, like the, noun version of the quilting no point the capiton the master signifier to me are the same thing but like yeah the master signifier does something other than just give like structure meaning the fact that it's like the structuring meaning like there can be a quilting point that's not i think like the fundamental structuring principle no, I think you're right. I think like a like a, a master signifier can quilt, but a quilting point doesn't necessarily have to have, isn't necessarily a master signifier. Yeah, like there's a quilting point in a dream, for example, that, that like I, that I yeah, think it's the like fucking doesn't... blanket yonda, <laughs> <laughs> the literal quilting point. Uh, yeah, that I don't think necessarily has to be like a master signifier in in relation to like the symbolic order or like that. I feel like huh. I wonder if we've like if if the master signifier operates structurally and the quilting point can be more personal, personalized, individualistic. Certainly, say for example, in love, there is like a a kind of personal quilting point in one's own like experience of love. Right, an event. Uh, yeah, I think that has that can't be about like everyone's experience because love is an exception. That's cool. That's nice. That's nice. Yeah, that's nice. Or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> let, me open, let me open this baby up. Uh, Firsty says for, for Kostya, my son. I actually didn't know that was his son's name. I didn't know how to pronounce it. Focaccia. I just, I just. <laughs> <laughs> so that's so stupid. Okay. Right. Michael, Paint, you want to handle it, Jack? You want to briefly please, God, in, please, introduce God. the book a little bit? Yeah, probably. What do I know about the book? For uh, They Know Not What They Do was released in 1991, a follow up to Zizek's breakthrough in English with the sublime object of ideology. It's basically the summation of a series of public lectures that he did following the publication of Sublime Object. He took it on the road, which has basically been his MO from the get-go. Whatever he's working on, he takes around the world and... Kind of workshops it. Workshops it, yeah. Yeah. Like a fucking touring comic. Yeah. And there is like, you can see some of Sublime Object in here, at least, you know, 
a good amount of it. But also what's more interesting is you can see his like greater project, even that he's working on now in here as well. Like mm-hmm. I was surprised to see him use the word, for instance, or the phrase short circuit. And yeah. basically in the same way that he means it now. Yeah. And things like uh, p- perspectival shifts. Mm-hmm. We see some like proto examples of the the parallax. Yep. And this is the uh, more like Hegelian focused text. Right. And he, you know, he does his Zizek thing where he, yeah, he got some Monty Python someone, in there. What, what sort of announces that shift from sublime object to this book that sort of makes this more of a Hegelian project than, than the Lacanian one. Then yeah. Cause, cause on the surface, it seems Lacanian with enjoyment and all that. The subheading mm. being uh, enjoyment as a political factor. Yeah. So he says that the book elaborates the contours of a Lacanian theory of ideology, moving step-by-step via ever new detours toward its main object, the status of enjoyment in ideological discourse, delaying this encounter in the same way as one delays the climactic reunion with a lady in courtly love. So sexy stuff from the Z-Man. And I guess there's something about the way that he moves from Lacan and Lacan's like understanding of semiotics and language to, and this was Matt's point, but like to get a fuller grasp of the way that the dialectic functions for Hegel and how that dialectic actually, because of this kind of Lacanian supplement, functions differently than Marx's dialectic, mm-hmm. right? And and that and that and for they know not what they do is ultimately a Marx reference, correct? Yeah, Marx and Christianity, right? And I and I, it's interesting that you know classic Zizek, it's like there's always this like Marxist banner. That that is that is by way of Lacan and Hegel so much different than Marx meant it. Yeah, I mean, like for instance, early on in the book, and this doesn't really play into the the structure of his argument, but he makes a kind of passing comment about Marxist alienation and the way that approaching it. Let me let me let me find the let me find the passage. This is the story of Peter Pan. You can read along with me in your book. You will know it is time to turn the page. When you hear the chimes ring like this. What is at stake here is the very notion of alienation in Marx. The moment the invertedness is redoubled, the moment the inversion attests the invertedness of the normal state itself, the very standard by means of which we measure alienation is called into question. So like what he's doing here is not only like trying to analyze how say politics or alienation what that bears on our experience, but also how the supposed movement or confusion that that alienation causes, what is that compared to? What is the supposed normal function of things that our economic or political system is alienating us from? That is also something to be considered because it's not enough to just say, and this is the point with ideology, is like it's not merely the clouding of our vision, but also how our vision itself is already constituted through ideology. Right. And that the structure of reality is, is in some way always already ideological, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Like what, yeah. What normal functioning of things are we comparing our, our analysis to? Yeah. Is that, is the very side of ideology itself. And we, we see it all the time. Like say your politics that we have the midterm elections coming up or like inflation, our experience now compared to the imagined normal functioning of things that that is without contradiction and to which we should return. Yeah, because it gets set up as some kind of comparison, right? Like a standard from which it's being compared. Yeah. But, but that invertedness already 
encapsulates for something to be inverted. So he uses the example of um, Gulliver's Travels, where like horses ride men, etc. Right, and that kind of caricature or satire shows us that the very normalcy of what we consider to be the default itself shares this inverted character. Right. And for the inversion to have any sort of bearing there, it already has to be latent in the first thing itself. So that, that inversion has to do with the way we enjoy, right. With enjoyment as a, as something of a political nature or political category. Right. Yeah. Well, he doesn't go too far into like the enjoyment as political factor early on, but I think right. we're only doing the first chapter today, by the way, everyone. So, uh, well, Michael, it just it felt like when you were talking about Gulliver and the and the inversion and the presence of the inversion already in the norms, like and also within our very subjectivity, right? It happens implications for this for the way for reality as such, subjectivity as such, and and of course our relation to it through enjoyment. Yeah, so I think yeah. you can you can pursue that idea, Jake, with the Monty Python example that he has with yeah. the the headmaster and his wife having sex in the classroom. So keeping in mind that idea of the inversion, the point of prohibition contains within it this obscene demand to enjoy. So prohibition and transgression share this mirroring. And the idea is that that which gets experienced as transgression is the inverted form of prohibition enjoyed. Right. So in Monty Python, there's the boys in the classroom and he didn't mention this, but it's to his point that when the sketch starts before the teacher walks in, all the students are sitting quietly and then the teacher walks in and they start, they start throwing things at each other as if they're performing transgression for the gaze of authority. Yeah. And when they're just, when it's just themselves and they don't feel compelled to do it. So the teacher walks in and he begins the lesson, tells them all to shut up and he begins the lesson and starts doing sex education where he actually brings his wife into the room and they start having sex. And he's just describing in a very technical way uh, how it works for the students. And they're all like, just like a regular class. They're all like really bored. They're looking out the window and uh, John Cleese is like, Hey, you know, what is, is there something that's so, yeah. What's so interesting yeah. out there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's funny because like it's commenting simultaneously on the way that like we, I mean, this is more mundane, but like are educated, like there's no matter what the subject is, the kind of the form of the education is the effect that it, that sort of effect on us. But more to Zizek's point, like the transgressive act, sex is rendered mundane because of the lesson itself. Yeah. So like what's <laughs> normally the- considered like a site of transgression or taboo, right? like yeah. sex for a for a, for a kid in high school, it's still like a giggly thing, right? Yeah. But what, what sustains it as a prohibition is the function of the headmaster, the name of the father. Yeah, the, the, yeah, the idea that it is a transgression. Yeah. When, once it enters the accepted functioning of the classroom, then it becomes another Banal like thing. boring subject. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's like how it's like how weed is no longer transgressive. Like everyone (laughs) and their mom literally smokes weed. 
it's it's also funny to see people like still trying to retain the kind of like badass yeah it's, it's kind of like culture weed. status yeah. like, no literally everyone does it <laughs> yeah although although because you know, because it. <laughs> exactly yeah nothing quite like seeing somebody walk out to you know where smokers are for example like who are enjoy, you know smoking cigarettes and somebody lights up a joint and it's like this what used to be sort of juxtaposed is no longer yeah. It doesn't have this kind of super, like this kind of intro, you know, uniqueness or supremacy. It's, it's mundane it's just, now. And, and honestly, cigarettes have kind of taken the, taken the place that mm-hmm. weed used to have because it's now it's the thing that's now it's not as condoned by the state as yeah. marijuana is. Like Clint Burnham was talking about how comic books were seen as a kind of transgressive form of enjoyment. Mm-hmm. And then when it gets taken in by academia and taught in schools there's the enjoyment has been taken away because uh-huh. it's longer and now comic books are just as stupid as they've always been yeah <laughs> well there's something there's something about the john cleese's position where it's like you know what what could be so interesting outside you know the, the, to the student looking out of the window mm. it's like it's almost as if why is this no longer interesting or why is this not intriguing you? Why is this not something that you're interested in? And I think that right. that's, you're, yeah, you're supposed to, to find this. Yeah. Now that's subtext and I'm, I'm definitely. No, no, but you, you can imagine it, right? Skit, like if, but the, it's, if the headmaster was standing outside of the room in the view of the window. Fucking his wife. The children exactly. would want to stare at the blackboard. Right. Well, no. So I was thinking, so I was thinking, you know, the, the, the normal structure would be imagine if it was an economics lecture, but outside somebody was fucking their wife, of course that would demand the attention. Right. Mm-hmm. But in this case we have the exact opposite. Yeah. If someone was giving an economics lecture outside, then they all want to go to the <laughs> sure. <laughs> sure. Sure. Well, and, and then that says something about like, you know, the way that, so it, it's the, the structure of enjoyment is either like we're being, you know, the super egoic, you know, imperative to enjoy, or we are enjoying it's, you know, our enjoyment yeah. is structured by a prohibition, right? It's, it's yeah, exactly. well, I think it those are the, taboo. And it's the same thing, right? Because like it's the, the, same the, thing. the super ego sets the, the, the taboo and prohibition and it's enjoyable because of that. Right. And so in this case, in this skit, what we're seeing is like, what happens when the, t- when the taboo becomes named, right? When it's like, when it's too, or I mean, tamed rather. Mm. tamed or named yeah but is, isn't it tamed when it's no longer naming, prohibited right? yeah yeah it's no longer prohibited but it, but actually but would you say that the by like by le- you know having it in this skit as like part of the lecture is it still an injunction to enjoy or is it that it's taking away the injunction i think there's the injunction yeah but maybe it's the fact that it's directly said rather than implied because so much of the the law is like unsaid yet implied and this is an extension, but you know how like we've heard there have been these like, you know, I can't reference them actually evidentially, but there's been reports that like Gen Z's, for example, are having the least amount of sex of any generation of any mm-hmm. you know, of all time. Mm-hmm. And it's because sex is so accessible, right? It's that, it's that sex is around around every and, and corner. For and them. also porn, you know, like must have something to do with that. But like for sure, like when you were talking about Michael earlier about I actually forget what you were saying, but what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, but what 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 I was thinking I about you were when you were talking about, about it, when <laughs> you were exactly. droning on, when you were droning on about some shit I don't care about. I was thinking that when when I was a kid in the schoolyard, another kid would like have porn, like a printout or like a, a ripped page from a magazine, and it was That's like so everyone, old Peter is, 
And everyone was looking at it like it was this like <laughs> I'm still young. A pinup girl. This is in the trenches of World War Fucking Two. And well, he's like, looking at I'm girls. just. It was just harder to to access, you know, naked images. And as such, it was it was so much more of a valuable mysterious object. We'd all stand around and like look at this ripped out page from a magazine and now like obviously you can sit in class and watch porn on your phone and i'm sure that happens you know all the way back to poor wittgenstein having to jerk off to mats in the trenches yeah poor bastard what is the sexiest to me i think the division sign is definitely the sexiest of the uh you know things you can find on a calculator Mm, (laughs) one three five oh boobies eight Zero zero eight five one three five. There you go. Did you guys do that one at school where (laughs) one person would put their hand like that? Mm -hmm. God, this this podcast. That's when we need (laughs) video because because who knows what fucking hand signal you just made? But I think everyone probably does know, which is kind of cool actually. So back to uh, what we were talking about with the simultaneity of of the prohibition and the imperative to enjoy in the superego is that has a lot to do with the quilting point and the master signifier that we were talking about earlier. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's they structured around the law or like the rules or whatever. And the, which obviously has a kind of structuring principle to it. And this is where Zizek asks, why does the absence of law universalize prohibition? Yes. Love that. And the answer <laughs> exactly as a way please enjoyment <laughs> itself so what we experience as transgression is something that gets imposed or ordered on us as an injunction the call of the superego to enjoy right so so the so that call is actually what sustains our enjoyment yeah the obscene underside to a prohibition is the demand for you to enjoy it's the kind of like compulsion to transgress the prohibition. It's already packed within it. And I mean, we've, we've talked about it before, but an obvious Shijakian example is in They Live when Don Nada is Nada. wearing the sunglasses for... <laughs> Nada is wearing sunglasses for the first time and he's seeing the, the underlying meaning of, of the ads around him. You know, like, uh, what are some of them like? Uh, obey. Obey, yeah. This is your God. Well, I, there is a question that precedes the, you know, why is the absence of the law universalized the rule, uh, the rule of prohibition? The question that precedes it is, if something is already forbidden, why is it necessary to prohibit it in the first place? Right. Right. Which just really, mm-hmm. I, I, quite frankly, I'm not entirely sure that one makes my, my head spin. Well, it's reminiscent of the paradox of the prohibition of incest, right? Yeah. So on the one hand, you know, like in Freud's time, there was a denial of of sexuality of children and so if there isn't childhood sexuality then why the need to go on to prohibit it right and then i suppose like it runs with zizek's example of the unanalyzable slovene Uh, okay jake i thought of the way to connect with what Michael said before I derailed the conversation with what Michael is saying and what you were about to say is the double reflection thing. The, ima- the imaginary and the symbolic as a double reflection. 
and what that means ideologically speaking. That there's something yeah. about enjoyment that requires or is the function of an imaginary relationship with our objet, our relationship with desire is then converted into the symbolic and a dialectical move. That has something to do with uh-huh. enjoyment and ideology. Yeah, well, here's a good passage from Zizek. He says, in this precise sense, the criticism of ideology consists in unmasking traditional allegory as an optical illusion, concealing the mechanism of modern allegory. The figure of the Jew as an allegory of evil conceals the fact that it represents within the space of ideological narration, the pure imminence of the textual operation that quilts it. The real questions, however, are, how is this purely formal inversion possible? On what does it rely? More precisely, how is it possible that the result of a purely formal inversion acquires enough substantially to be perceived as flesh and blood personality? The psychoanalytic answer is, of course, enjoyment. Like, how does the the clouding of our perception and also our you know symbolic world itself, th- that inversion, this ideological manipulation of our experience and also of our of our very notions or concepts of ourselves, how does that switch take place? And for Zizek and psychoanalysis, it's enjoyment. But you were also asking Jake, I think, how. In, within that operation, how do we move from the symbolic to the imaginary, right? Yeah, the way I was thinking about it is that the, the relationship between the imaginary and the symbolic isn't of two different levels or external entities. It's the, the specific dimension of the symbolic emerges from the imaginary mirroring. So there's a point of double reflection at which the imaginary is hooked on the symbolic. So what does it mean, right? Like it means that the the normal state of things of which the other is an inversion is already an inverted state by definition. So right. to exist the, at all. To exist at all. Yeah. So yeah. the imaginary is itself already related to the symbolic and vice versa. So the topsy-turvy world as an inversion is always a case of two, the invertedness of our allegedly normal world. Yeah. The topsy to the turvy. Um, briefly, this what came to mind for me reading this was this is actually quite close to Sartre's description of self consciousness and the imaginary. And that self consciousness is a double reflection of consciousness being aware that it's conscious. So there's a direct experience of the redoubling of the awareness of that experience. And then the imaginary is the third layer on which we project our self consciousness onto the world. Right. So, like- anyway. For Hegel, would that be you have the move from self-consciousness to consciousness to consciousness of consciousness? I think that would match. So like, and and I think that there's something, there's a constitutive relationship between the imaginary and the symbolic here that has to do with subjectivity and enjoyment. That's got me really kind of like, you know, I, I don't know what to say quite yet, but I know that there's something at least that was talked about in the reading group, which is about that we ourselves posit the prohibition. How do we get beyond that deadlock right, that you're talking about, that, that you guys have been talking about? The deadlock of the inversion, right? Is that a simple acknowledgement of the inversion is not necessarily enough. From a stance, from a critical stance, but also from like, a, I think a subjective stance is like, once we are exposed to that deadlock, to the inversion and to the double, you know, the double. Is it a, is it a deadlock though? I wonder. Well, it certainly fucks up my, you know, I'm like, well, how am I supposed to enjoy? Right. <laughs> right. Like, like if my relationship, I was actually watching Gilmore Girls last night and uh, which is just an absolute banger of a show. 
but is it? <laughs> but, yeah, but but and I and I re- I really do relate to Lorelai. Uh, but Lorelai Lorelai's talking about she she discovers that like part of the reason why she enjoys what she enjoys is because her mother forbade it. And she starts to go through this kind of psychotic moment where she, she wants to embrace only what her mother approves of, or like, she's like, am I only, do I only enjoy what I enjoy because it was prohibited? And so she starts to kind of have this inverse relationship where she's like, what I'll do instead is try and take up what my mother, you know, doesn't prohibit, prohibit and see if I enjoy it or, or like, so she, she kind of has this psychotic breakdown, right? This sort of subjective destitution where she realizes her enjoyment is basically, you know, hinged upon a, a pretty frail symbolic register of what is an imaginary identification. And so she, you know, this, this comes down to like, she's like, I don't even know if I like pop tarts. Right. And, and I think like, because her mother forbade pop tarts in the house and that to me, like I've gone through that very process, right. It's like yeah. trying to think about why it is. I enjoy what I enjoy coming down to, a, Oh my God, my desire is a desire for the other. And that's it. Yeah. Right. Is that, is that what, what does that mean? Especially if this conversation is going to head, you know, maybe in future weeks into like the political, how this is situated politically, realizing that we posit the initial prohibition that we take it up and then identify it. And it has this kind of dialectic, um, uh, here we go. I I don't want to lose either you myself or the audience in words, but like this dialectic between the symbolic and the imaginary can be resituated by the election of another signifier, a new master signifier. There's my kettle, but um, I think that's you're gonna, what we're you're gonna have to pick that baby up. I know. Well, it's worse <laughs> than my breathing, eh? <laughs> that's right. My cat's like vomiting on the floor at the same time. <laughs> you know what I do with those whistling pots? I just leave it, leave it on unclosed, so you know it's gonna boil, and you can pick it up at your leisure. You know. This is what my very smart roommate does. And I actually, one time, you know, her, her and I have a very, um, I'm sure you can hear everything right now. Sorry. But her, her and I have a very like, uh, understanding relationship. We don't have to talk. We don't have to talk very much about things, but the one thing I've had to talk to her about, I was like, listen, put the lid on the kettle or you're going to burn the fucking house down. And I've realized there's nothing more in this world. I hate than a fucking whistling kettle. You know, I fucking it's, hate yeah, it. It's the worst sound. And you, and the moment it boils, you have to, you have to run out of the room, but like, I don't know when I'm boiling water in one of those things, you take I'm, I can still hear bit. it. I can still hear it boiling in the next room. So well, you could I just can, get an electric kettle like a normal person. No, 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 no. There's a, you can't. But yeah. Enjoy your fucking PVC or whatever that chemical, the, the plastic is in this. Jake, that's your surplus drama and in, in suffering through a, an old fashioned kettle. At least you're not consuming microplastics. <laughs> and then I'm not sure you get it. You, you like the next second you like drink from a plastic water bottle or something. Yeah, no, what I do, what I do instead is buy a metal kettle from Walmart. Which is definitely <laughs> no, like not better in any fucking way. Yeah. Exactly. And it was made for about four cents and I'm buying it for $40. Anyway, yeah. I'm not, uh, I'm not a saint and I do, you know, f- uh, for they know not what they do. I feel like it's like, Oh, that's the title of the book we're reading. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah it's funny how like you're, you like hate this whistling pot and you're like, at least uh, you're like right next to him thinking to yourself, like, at least I don't have a plastic that's right. one. <laughs> that's right. I mean, fucking electric kettle. Those are no fun. It's no fun. Tension, I think like, they're better. I will say, do yourself a favor. Next time you're watching pretty much any movie that you like, you'll probably hear a fucking whistling kettle. If it's a movie with tension, talk about the universal symbol for tension. 
That and uh, phone also, yeah, I was going to say a ring telephone, which is in some ways why uh, new movies aren't as good as, as older ones. And also the tension caused by a character like, you know, miscommunications or like someone not getting information in time gets all gets solved by cell phones. Mm-hmm. It's true. Anyway, just not the same. Hold on. Hold on. Okay. I heard what you said. So being the subject, <laughs> being the subject of the prohibition, but like, so, but we've been talking today about, about what happens when that prohibition changes or, and you know, you're still why? a subject of the changed prohibition, right? Like, like, for example, we are subjects of ideology and it's not to say that we are all of humanity has only ever been subjects of a particular ideology, but within culture, within society, within, you know, the functioning of the way humans act in the world, we are subjects of ideology, one that can change. Right. But so, so it's like, you're saying that there's something about the sub, you know, the symbolic ego ideal, right. The sort of the way that the imaginary folds into the symbolic. And we have this like identification with the prohibition of the big other, right. That's where, that's this quilting point that like, yeah, there's tension there because, because there's, there's a possibility that that relationship and it, and it's tenuous tenuousness can either through the occurrence of an event or the emergence of a new signifier or through the psychoanalytic process can be completely unraveled to the point where your subjectivity is laid bare. And like, I guess there can be an impasse if you view yourself uh, as a subject merely through those objective categories. And then just like you were saying with this, with the Gilmore girls, uh, (laughs) where it can lead to this kind of break where you realize that, okay, am I only, a subject in relation to the things that I shouldn't enjoy. Can there be such thing as finding a source of my own enjoyment? Maybe, you know, maybe that's the, that's where he's going with this book where one's enjoyment. And this is actually where Todd goes in capitalist desire where enjoyment can be kind of refitted as a political, like to political ends through the subjective enjoyment. Right. Or reje- rejection of the non-choice, right? The sort of like the, I would prefer not to in this, in this stance is like, is I, I think also powerful because to realize that you are only existing, you know, as an, as a re- reflection of the virtual gaze of the other, you know, or that your desire is only the desire of the other. Like once that realization happens there, the idea is that you don't, you can't just start creating your own enjoyment i don't think yeah and does the realization really change anything because of course no, Zizek, no. it doesn't right i mean his formulation of ideology is they know what they're doing and they're doing it anyway we in despite despite right yeah. it's like i like i the subjective destitution does not actually presuppose a kind of authentic you know and i know that my language is going to sneakily become heideggerian here but like a kind of authentic taking up of one's own new ideological yeah and of course and yeah desire yeah and of course this is the problem with that very silly like soup protest where the idea was that now that we realize that we should talk about the environment because they threw soup on van gogh then things will change we all know that there's a problem but we're, yeah. we we behave as if there isn't one that's right. Yeah, so JJ, what really gets solved? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It's not a lack of awareness or knowledge of a problem, nor is it a yeah. lack of solutions. Exactly. Because to even be, you know, materialist Marxist about it, like the problem isn't the awareness of the environmental catastrophe. It's the structural, economic, and political incentives against it. Yeah. That- Do you think that we could link this to the emperor's clothes? Is there something like, so in Zizek's example of the emperor's new clothes, there's something of this catastrophe that's supposed to occur 
when people see that the emperor is walking around naked. So isn't there something, <laughs> isn't there something to this example where when the soup can is thrown on the painting, it's supposed to be this reveal, this this like opening of the catastrophe where instead yeah. of course it continues the same. Yeah. I mean like this will be forgotten very soon. Uh, well, that's, that's an interesting point, right? Is that the, that the reassumption of the, you know, the default it's, it's that the second clause is that we act despite, right? Is that we know that we know what we do, but we do it despite is much more, you know, operative than like, the first clause is yes, the ideological illusion, but the acting despite is the more important thing. Yeah, and, and that's something the, futile about transgression, right? Sure. Is that like transgression is rendered futile by the by the smooth functioning of the system to be able to incorporate these things and then find out that they're funded by you know oil people or that yeah. it's protected by glass is like there's like. Yeah. There are all these unique ways of being like, well, that's transgression really wasn't, it was just more about their own enjoyment. And it wasn't about like that's a good disrupting, point. disrupting the, uh, uh, disrupting the way things work. Yeah. And also it's even on their terms, exercise and enjoyment. if, if, if all we needed to, 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 to do was know about it, then an inconvenient truth would have, would have changed the world. <laughs> right. Right. Well, it's, it's kind of interesting, right? Because the original ending to Anderson's tale was that the subjects admired his invisible clothes and it was when it, when it was at the printing press that he changed it. Mm, that's cool. So if the story did end with them admiring his invisible clothes, you, you, you see the continuation of that particular formation, right? Whereas mm -hmm. instead this is supposed to be this grand reveal. Right. And it's not enough. The right. point is that it's not enough, right? Is that there's something about the negation of the negation is not enough to necessarily disrupt the function of a master signifier, the quilting point and how, it, how, it, how it structures our desire, right? It's like, that's what I think I'm trying to get at. And I do need your help here, boys. Well, I, you know, like the book is, is towards that consideration in this precise sense, negation of the negation designates the self-relating negativity. The moment when the external negative relationship between law and crime turns into law's internal self-negation, when law appears as the sole true transgression. Negation of negation is what we're talking about, like where the prohibition becomes part of the law itself. Mm -hmm. And the law, the law is its prohibition. But the law is its own prohibition. Yeah. Like as in it sort of sets in motion. Okay. The law prohibits itself is what we're saying here? Well, I don't know. For personally, considerations of the law don't really interest me a whole lot. <laughs> well, like, like that, that in a certain way, the law determines how it's going to be broken, right? Like that there's, right. there's, oh, a, yeah. there's a, there's a relationship between law and what it kind of prohibits that prohibits itself from being. Well, that's right. I mean, like laws sort of presupposed foundation is a crime. That's it right. obscures that history. And basically what he's covering in this chapter is the various points at which we're finding enjoyment being operative within, within the law, within the subject, within the master signifier. He's kind of moving through this mess of, of signifiers, spends time talking about like, how can the signifier be, yeah, how can like the signifier represent another signifier in its absence slack as the subject? Well, the prohibition only exists. What's funny is like, okay, we're talking about law and prohibition and like, isn't it because it's covering up for a lack in the symbolic structure itself, right? That, that the, the reason why we elect a prohibition is that there's not 
anything that guarantees our enjoyment, right? The prohibition covers up that there's a, a fundamental lack that is the condition of our enjoyment and that it attaches itself metonymically to like in the world by, and it's organized, the metonymic attachment is organized by whatever a given signif- you know, master signifiers at that time or the prohibition of the law, whatever the fuck. An awareness of that lack is supposed to change our relationship to prohibition. No. If we can see that the prohibition stands only in front of or to obscure the lack from which it originates, what happens when we become well, aware of that? Yeah. But that, that, that they're so, so, but so to resist the prohibition in a way only instantiates the original lack, right? Because we talked about the doubling nature of, of enjoyment and its prohibition that simultaneously, because our enjoyment either is, it happens in two ways. It's either, you know, it's either the imperative of the super ego to enjoy or it's the prohibition. Like those are one and the same, no? Flip side of the same coin. Okay. Jacob's uh, guys. No, yeah. Well, you're talking about void. You're talking about lack. Shizuk writes, subject is this void, this lack in the series of the predicates of the universal substance. It is the nothing imply in the substance's tautological self-relationship. And I think the, the self-relationship we're, we're talking about is that double reflection we're talking about. And also how that via that process, the subject represents a signifier for another subject. So yeah, basically how the subject becomes, subject is subject through this uh, symbolic chain of the law. But, mirroring, yeah. Yeah, but there's also, like you were saying, a kind of void within it. The Maybe the inab- inability for language to fully represent meaning, right? Or because of the impossibility you know, to enjoy, right? completeness, <laughs> yeah, full enjoyment. And that is also subjectivity. The subject is the nothing implied in substance's tautological self-relationship. That's a, a Hegelian twist on it. The subject is the void in the, the kind of void within substance. Mm-hmm. I like this, you know, like the, when you're a kid, the tautology of law is like your parents say, uh, do as I say, not as I do. They're like, it's the because I said so of the law. So like with Jake's Gilmore Girl, there's a certain point where like you could imagine in the narrative, Jake, that the daughter finds the mother eating the Pop-Tart in the house. And so there's this moment of like, oh, well, the figure of authority is already transgressing her, her own law. Law is contradictory or uh, hypocritical, right? And that doesn't change the dynamic that they have between mother and daughter at this moment of hypocrisy. It strengthens the... Uh, prohibition because it's it's now it's it now reinforces the enjoyment of the taboo mm-hmm. that's just for jack <laughs> the enjoyment of the taboo being what ultimately justifies that process yeah of the prohibition of the law yeah uh okay fellas i uh i think well we if not summed it up then we certainly had a conversation about the chapter uh any other thoughts no. no, Jacob. I want to get back. I want to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> well, not the episode, yeah. not Why the is- episode, but I want to do it again. You know, whatever it is, whatever this it is, I want to do it again. Right now? Yeah, I want to do it again. I want to do it. I want to, I want to have, I want to do this again with you guys. And I want to, I want to make sure that we don't leave this text behind because I, I, Right. Here's Jack and so on. We're a no text left behind podcast. Well, can, can you, can you tell me what, what actually is happening next up? We've got, we've got, so the reading group is bi-weekly. I like that because it's like, it's like aftercare, you know, we get it. We get, it's like the touch up on the, on the zoom that Jake's uses. 
Uh, okay. So I, believe I admitted that. Okay. Uh, I can't okay, believe fellas, I admitted that. Uh, see you later till next time. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> bye. Bye. A very breathy. Goodbye. Bye. This is normally when I'd hang up. I was so close to just being like, I was so close to hang up. Thank you.